Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college. You can read what I write at altea.org or excorde.org. Rejoice, and again I say rejoice, is the second reading we heard on Gaudete Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent, the Sunday when the church gets sick of Advent for one Sunday and dresses in pink to be all excited to be even more joyful, to rejoice that Jesus is coming. So I wanted to rejoice a little bit today and talk about five more signs of hope for Christianity. I spoke about five signs of hope once before on a podcast. The five I shared before is that Jesus has more followers. There's a worldwide Christian boom that the media is not telling you about. There's kind of a demographic collapse at the same time here in the West, which you may have heard about, the birth dearth. But what's not mentioned as often is that precisely the countries that are most religious are producing the most children. And not just that, but Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds in Africa and India, even in China, in South America as well. Uh, We also spoke about how convictional Christians are replacing nominal Christians. We keep hearing about the rise of the nuns and people claiming they have no religion. Uh, What we forget is that for years, lots of people instinctively, kind of reactively said, yes, I'm Christian, even if they had never darkened the church door and had never considered Jesus Christ as a significant part of their life. Well, now that's changing. Now we have convictional Christians overtaking nominal Christians. We have people following Jesus more closely than ever before. We talked about the renewal of the sacraments, especially of Mass and Confession. And these are privileged places of a direct contact with Jesus Christ in the Mass, in Confession. And there's no greater sign of hope for Christianity than that we're getting these right. And we also shared the rise of Eucharistic adoration. I pointed out that especially here in Kansas, for instance, in Wichita, You can hardly throw a rock without hitting a perpetual Eucharistic chapel. Uh, You shouldn't throw rocks at perpetual Eucharistic chapels. But we have tons and tons of Eucharistic adoration all over the country, all over the world now, which was unheard of when I was young. Another sign of hope I shared was the uh, youth formation. Jesus Christ's followers are younger than ever before. We talked about, especially World Youth Day, but there's also vacation Bible schools. There's the homeschooling movement, which is in many cases religious. There's the pro-life movement, which is almost entirely religious. So you have young people rallying to Jesus Christ in ways that simply were not available when I was young, for instance. Today I want to continue on this His Witnesses Are Young thing and share that uh, there's a renewal in higher education as well. Now, this is especially good news because statistically— Going to youth group in high school, going to vacation Bible school as a child, do not necessarily increase your chances of keeping your faith into your adulthood. What does significantly increase your chances of keeping your faith into adulthood is rooting your faith in the Catholic intellectual tradition by going to a Catholic college and actually learning why this stuff is all true why we have to change the way we live. 
I'll give you a brief history lesson. In 1967, Catholic University leaders from all over the country got together at Land O'Lakes Retreat Center and wrote a new Magna Carta for Catholic education in the United States. And uh, what this document did was it said, well, we need to stop being so slavishly conforming to the magisterium. We need to go off on our own directions. We need to have freedom to think and breathe and say what we want to say about the faith. And that turned out to be kind of the death knell for many Catholic colleges. You've seen many, many Catholic colleges shudder themselves in between then and now. But in 1983, the church responded as speedily as it usually does. So this is from 1967 to 1983. Uh, and with the Canon 8.12, so the revised code of canon law included Canon 8.12 that said that theology professors at institutions of higher learning need to have a mandatum from the bishop. That means that they need to have the bishop's seal of approval that what they're teaching is in conformity with the magisterium. Following the 1983 revised Code of Canon Law, the church speedily followed up as it normally does, but this time it took seven years. In 1990, Pope John Paul II uh, released Ex Corde Ecclesiae, the document for which excorde.org is named. In that document, he said that Catholic colleges were to transform culture, uh, which is where we ultimately get our mission here at Ex Corde, but also that everybody needs to have uh, a mandatum if they're going to teach theology. You need to enact Canon 812 in your college. And then speedily, again, 10 years later, the U.S. bishops implemented the mandatum and uh, kind of put in place the infrastructure by which colleges could actually do this. I was the editor of the National Catholic Register at the time, and we did a series of articles where we asked colleges, are you willing to say whether or not you have the mandatum? Many were not willing to say that they have the mandatum. Many did not want to be publicly in compliance with the church. One of the ones that did was Benedictine College and, and several others. We actually at the National Catholic Register started to do a yearly guide to Catholic colleges where we let colleges reveal to customers that they were following the church's teaching, that they were following Canon 812. Around the same time, the Newman Guide from the Cardinal Newman Society came out, which essentially does the same thing, shares with uh, customers which Catholic colleges are actually taking seriously the church's teachings. Now there are dozens of Catholic colleges that are following the church's teaching as regards the mandatum. And I spoke to Patrick Riley, the president of the Cardinal Newman Society, because he was kind of integrally involved with our plans as we were writing this Transforming Culture in America plan for Benedictine College. And he said that he expected the Newman Guide list of colleges to grow by 10 to 20 colleges within the next 10 years. Catholic colleges are realizing that the only way they will attract students is truth in advertising by proclaiming their fidelity to the magisterium. If this looks like a power move by the church, where the church is coming in and saying, you must say only what we say you may say, and we will muzzle anything else, uh, you have to understand from the perspective of, Catholic, of higher education that this is not an unusual request at all. You know, the national biology organizations have standards for what biology departments must teach. National chemistry, higher education 
organizations have standards for what uh, chemistry departments should teach. And if you teach things that aren't in conformity with what these organizations say, then you can't get accredited. Your program can't get accredited. That's no different in the theology world. If you aren't teaching in conformity with the magisterium, then the Catholic theology you're teaching is not worthy of the name. So not only are mandatum schools on the rise, but within these mandatum schools, you see a huge rise in theology majors, which is now one of the most popular majors here at Benedictine College. You have rise in numbers of people wanting to be youth ministers, numbers of people wanting to be missionaries, lay and otherwise. Uh, so you see this real flowering of the Catholic intellectual tradition in the lives of young people. So it's not just relegated to youth rallies. It's become part of the, the lives and the minds of these young people. So we always say that we want to promote community, faith, and scholarship. Well, community and faith are not enough. You need the scholarship to back it up. However, at some colleges, uh, state colleges, you can at least get the community and faith part of that. So, for instance, the St. Lawrence Center at uh, the University of Kansas uh, is a great place that uh, gives people community and faith. You have Newman Centers at various schools, like Texas A&M, I guess, has a really good one. So you have these places at state schools where students can go and discover the faith in community with others. Again, I'm speaking from the campus of a Newman Guide Catholic College of a Mandatum school. Uh, and I think you'll get a much deeper uh, experience of the faith by attending one of these schools. I am biased, but I think there's a point to that. Even though at other schools, you can get these new Catholic outreach organizations. You have St. Paul's Outreach that does wonderful work with young people on college campuses. You have Focus, which we're particularly close to here at Benedictine College because it was founded here on our campus which has these enormous blowout rallies, the Sikh conferences that are always really invigorating. But they do the hard work of day-to-day -day discipleship with students at campuses across the country. So lots of signs of hope in that young people who are in their formative years in college are reconnecting with their faith in a very deep way. And this is leading to our next sign of hope, which is great young vocations. I'm speaking to you from Atchison, Kansas, where for the first time in years, we recently have had uh, young men from our town enter religious life, at least try out the seminary. I have in front of me a picture of the vocations poster in North Dakota, where there are lots and lots of young vocations. Also for the Archdiocese of Kansas City here in Kansas, where there are lots of young vocations. Uh, you may have seen some of these uh, mailings that come from uh, these orders of sisters who are bursting at the seams. They say if they have a different sort of vocation crisis where they literally don't have room to house everybody who wants to join their order. Many of these are members of the Council of Major Superiors of Women Religious, which are uh, is a kind of a new organization of religious where the average age of these sisters is 35. These are uh, sisters who tend to wear habits. I'm looking at pictures of them, and there are tons and tons of them. I won't start to name the orders because I'm sure to leave one out. I will mention the uh, Martyrs of St. George in Alton, Illinois, because this picture is too good to pass up. I have a picture of their class 
a recent class of theirs where a bunch of sisters took vows. And since seven of them were Benedictine College graduates, they broke out in the Benedictine College fight song in the reception after uh, taking their vows, which I think is hilarious and awesome. Now, these numbers don't necessarily show up in the aggregate in the kind of overall vocations numbers because there are such a huge number of older vocations who are reaching the end of their life. These numbers are dwarfed by the larger numbers of folks who are leaving either because of death or for whatever other reason. But I have here uh, numbers from CARA, which is the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate that kind of tracks Catholic uh, statistics. And they show that, since, this is 2018 data, but they show a trend upward in the past several years as the number of vocations uh, grow year after year after year. So that's really good news and it's a sign of hope for Christianity. Another sign of hope for Christianity is the number of saints and Christian witnesses in the world. You know, we can forget because we listen too closely and believe too easily the narrative that secular uh, media sources often feed us. We can forget just how significantly powerful the uh, Christian witness in the 20th century was, late 19th century and throughout the 20th century. I mean, look at what Christians did in this period of time. Christians ended slavery. Christians got women the right to vote. Obviously, there were Christians on both sides of that issue as a number of these, but uh, there was a decisive Christian witness on the right side of the issue that helped win the day. We had, because of Catholic social teaching, new wage laws and workers' rights laws that came directly out of Pope Leo and his uh, Rerum Novarum. You had the UN Declaration of Human Rights was written in the 20th century, largely based on Catholic social thought, at least as an influence, as a major influence, if not explicitly. It's hard to imagine that document being written today in the way it was then. You had the Nuremberg trials where Nazis were put on trial for mistreating patients, uh, and you had the kind of the rules coming out of that, which were an expression essentially of Catholic bioethics, but at least Christian bioethics for sure. You had the Geneva Conventions that were written, which are basically encoding Catholic just war theory into international law. You had uh, Catholics promoting civil rights the world over, including here in the United States with Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I'm looking at a picture of him. Uh, it's actually a meme that says, keep your religion out of politics uh, as things that MLK never said, and it shows him hand in hand with two priests in the March on Washington. You had, as I mentioned before, Fatima, uh, the Fatima missionaries praying for Russia, essentially ending communism throughout the world. And then you have this extraordinary example of Mother Teresa and a number of other witnesses to Christian charity throughout the world. She became kind of the uh, icon of what it means to be a kind, loving, generous person. Uh, and you see that icon taken up by Catholics again and again. I read before the quote of um, Nikki Haley, who spoke to Catholics and talked about how she went all over the world as a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. And everywhere she went, she found one constant which was the Catholic Church was there serving the poor. I firmly believe that if we didn't have the sex abuse scandals in the 20th century, 
the church's brand would have simply been just this enormous outpouring of charity and social justice, which is so closely identified with the followers of Christ. Now, of course, you have a new flowering of Christian culture online. You know, in my inbox every morning, I get I get messages from Ascension. I get messages from Bishop Barron. I get all this amazing formative content that can teach me what the faith means and how to apply it to my life. You have a blossoming of apostles on YouTube from Matt Frad to Jennifer Fulweiler. You have the Augustine Institute. You have Catholic Answers. You have St. Paul Center. And of course, you have Ex Corde, which is providing the same sort of content, and we're adding more and more uh, if you check it out at excorde.org. Now, apart from these explicitly Christian witnesses in politics and culture, you have uh, a kind of a witness of Christianity in the entertainment realm. So I'm going to call this uh, another sign of hope, and let's call it the um, Christian witness in culture. And you have a number of movies, and I'm watching them appear on the screen before me as I speak. You have uh, you know, the Narnia movies, you have the Lord of the Rings movies, which are essentially Catholic works, Catholic and Christian works that uh, were huge kind of monumental works of entertainment in pop culture. You have The Passion of the Christ, and I guess there's a follow-up coming out of The Resurrection of Christ. You have Exodus, which was a much better movie than you would expect, starring Christian Bale as Moses. And then at one point, I started to count all the good priest movies that have come along, despite the sex scandals, in the last uh, 10 years or so, 14, 15 years. And there's uh, Henry Poole is here, which starred Luke Wilson, and also had George Lopez as a priest. It's actually a really, really great portrayal of a Catholic priest. The premise of the movie is that Jesus starts to appear on the side of this man's garage and... Uh, People start to come with votive candles. It's a largely Hispanic neighborhood. And the priest comes to visit. And the priest neither is willing to just kind of ratify the miracle on the spot or discount it. He's very well done. You have Gran Torino, which was a great, great movie by uh, Clint Eastwood, uh, where there's a young whippersnapper priest that this old curmudgeonly character kind of dismisses, but then turns out to have a bigger impact on him than you realized. You had this great B-movie with Cheech. Cheech of Cheech and Chong (laughs) plays a priest with these uh, kids from Monterey who are trying to win the Little League World Series. The movie is called The Perfect Game. You had Mighty Max, which is another great sports B-movie. Then you had kind of these uh, more somber, artsy movies. You had Of Gods and Men with these hero priests. You had um, uh, You Have the Right starring Anthony Hopkins as an exorcist. Any good exorcist movie is a good priest movie. You have Man of Steel, uh, where Superman himself goes to a priest for spiritual counsel. You had Les Miserables, the uh, musical, uh, which has the wonderful bishop in it. You had For Greater Glory. Uh, Father Brown was a series on BBC. There's Calvary, which was an artsy priest movie. There's Daredevil, on uh, Netflix, which was a good, which has a good priest in it. Then you had Silence, which I thought was better than the book in terms of being a good priest movie. Uh, you had The Vessel, starring Martin Sheen as a priest. And then, of course, a couple years ago, you had The Irishman, 
which is a Scorsese mafia movie where, spoiler alert, uh, a priest figures very powerfully and positively at the very um, end of uh, the movie uh, with uh, Robert De Niro as the mafioso and Jonathan Morris as the priest. Anyway, so you also have all these great uh, Jesus movies that have come out. There was a uh, there was Son of God, which is kind of you know my students call it the GQ Jesus. There was the Bible miniseries that was on cable for a while that uh, there was a lot of buzz over, and then the follow up was AD. There was the Ewan McGregor from Star Wars played Jesus in Last Days in the Desert in 2016. You had Paul, Apostle of Christ, with uh, Jim Caviezel as St. Luke. Uh, you had Risen, which was a mainstream movie about the resurrection. You had Joaquin Phoenix, who would later play the Joker, playing Jesus Christ himself in a movie. And then, of course, we have the cultural phenomenon, which is The Chosen, uh, which people have been enjoying for the last couple of years as it comes out um, online. So you have this upsurge of interest in Jesus Christ, in the church, in the priesthood, which I think is a remarkable sign of hope, one that you don't notice unless you stop and kind of pay attention. And that brings us to a final uh, sign of hope, and I think the greatest one of all, and that's the witness of the martyrs. You know, early on, Tertullian, I think it was, who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, where there is great martyrdom, you will find great growth in Christianity. Well, there's never been more martyrs than there are today. The martyrs of the 20th century dwarfed all the previous centuries combined, and as Pope Francis never tires of saying, we're on track to to beat that in the 21st century. We are in the age of martyrs. This is even supported by recent research I saw that said that Christianity declines not where they're, well, not where it's persecuted. Where it's persecuted, it rises. It declines where it is comfortable. So it's no surprise that it declines in the West and is growing in places where it's persecuted, such as Africa, uh, such as the Middle East, such as India. Remember at the National Catholic Register, we were covering the Iraq War when I first heard of this uh, priest, Father Ghani. He gave this incredible testimony at a Eucharistic Congress in Rome, where he talked about Christians of Mosul, Iraq. He said, Mosul Christians are not theologians, some are even illiterate. And yet, inside of us, for many generations, one truth has become embedded. Without the Sunday Eucharist, we cannot live. The terrorists might think they can kill our bodies or our spirits by frightening us, but on Sundays, churches are always full. They may try to take our life, but the Eucharist gives it back. Now, this is a man who saw a sister was, I think, attacked by acid outside of his church one day. He tells this inspiring but very, very sad story about teaching First Communion to uh, young kids. And he was in the basement of a house, kind of giving them their First Communion lessons when he heard gunfire nearby. The kids immediately got very frightened. And he said, no, this is just fireworks celebrating your First Communion. But he said, there are days when I feel frail and full of fear. But when holding the Eucharist, I say, behold the Lamb of God, behold who takes away the sin of the world. I feel his strength in me. When I hold the host in my hands, it is really he who is holding me and all of us, challenging the terrorists and keeping us united in his boundless love. 
And he died within weeks of saying that at the, at the hands of terrorists who captured him in Iraq. Then there was this incredibly inspiring story out of Libya. It was actually Coptic Christians who turned out to be kind of migrant workers who were in Libya at a work camp. And these Coptic Christians have an ancient tradition of uh, tattooing a cross on their wrists. And that tradition has become even more important now because they show their wrists as they enter the church. And that helps the um, churches keep out people who might mean harm to the parishioners instead of coming to worship. At any rate, though, these are just regular guys, migrant workers, who were in a work camp when they were attacked by ISIS. And these ISIS soldiers just went through the work camp, grabbed everyone by the hand, looked at their wrist, and if they had a cross, they dragged them off. Um, and then they beheaded them and created this YouTube video uh, that was taken down from YouTube, obviously, but it was shared all over the place uh, of them beheading these uh, the, these Coptic Christians that they captured in Libya. What you found in the stories of these reporters talking to the families was that in most cases, the mothers, sisters, wives of these men had not watched the video, but in most cases, their brothers had. And one brother said of his uh, martyr brother, to the last moment, the name of Jesus was on his lips. As they were martyred, they were calling God's name, saying, God, have mercy on us. The entire village is proud. The mother of one 29-year-old uh, martyr, Samuel Abraham, said, We thank ISIS. Now more people believe in Christianity because of them. ISIS showed what Christianity is. We thank God that our relatives are in heaven. He chose them. The wife of Milad Makin, and she's only 26, she said, ISIS thought they would break our hearts. They did not. Milad is a hero now and an inspiration to the whole world. The heroic witness of the Egyptian martyrs is already having this effect. Uh, this one really breaks my heart. This is the 10-year-old, I think, daughter of a 41-year-old martyr. His name was uh, Maged Shehata. She said, my father died like a lion. He did not bow his head down. I am now from the city of the martyrs, the city of the brave lions. May God forgive the killers. We don't have hatred toward them. This is Christianity. God forgives sinners, and so shall we. This is a 10-year-old talking about her father who was beheaded on an online video. And then this one is really remarkable. Uh, ISIS announced that there were 21 cops killed but only 20 names were confirmed. And in images of the martyrdom, there's this one guy that, you know, these are all Middle Eastern guys who are uh, Coptic Christians, but one guy was a black guy. Uh, his, he was from Chad, apparently. He was not named in the official report. But if you look at the video, which I haven't done, but apparently on the video, they ask him if he too is a Christian. And he looks at the Christian friends who have been martyred, and he says, their God is my God. So they beheaded him along with them. And now in the iconography of the event, you see all of these uh, faces. Uh, in the Coptic iconography, you kind of replace Jesus's face on uh, the, the bodies of the martyrs. You see all of these martyrs and then one uh, black face in the middle uh, showing that man's sacrifice. And that's a sign of hope because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that was true in the first century. That is true in our century. So, yes, 
It's Rejoice Sunday, and yes, we can rejoice even in the midst of persecution. We can have hope because of the higher education renewal, showing that this Christian revival happening in our day is being rooted in the Catholic tradition, the Catholic intellectual tradition. We can be hopeful because of the great young vocations that we're seeing. We can be hopeful because of the strong Christian witnesses, both in charitable service, which is significant, in evangelization, which is remarkable right now, and in cultural products, which is an untold story of our time that's extremely significant. We live in a new age of martyrs where, once again, Christianity is being persecuted as never before and will rise as never before. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.